The Anaphorah prayer begins right after the creed. As soon as we end with the creed, we say, Let us stand well, let us stand in awe, let us be attentive, that we may present the holy offering, the holy offering, the holy anaphorah. That's what anaphorah means. So that begins the prayers of anaphorah. Now we are offering God bread and wine, but we're offering Him much more than that. Father Anthony Conyers quotes E. Wilson, who says, Giving God permission to do glorious things with our life, having once given your life and your will to God as a reasonable offering, everything that happens to you is sanctioned by Him, because He allows only such things to happen to you when once you have put your life in His hands. So we are offering God our very selves, not just bread and wine, but our very selves. So there's different parts, and this prayer is kind of a long prayer, and it's made even longer in St. Basil's liturgy. And the reason we're doing this now is because we're about to begin St. Basil's uh, liturgy as we begin Lent. It is celebrated five times throughout, ten times throughout the year, five times during Lent. So Sunday liturgies during Lent, keep this paper and you will hear these prayers. And you will better understand them and follow along with them. What I have here is one segment, one section of that prayer. I haven't copied all the Anaphora prayers, but we're going to look at this specific section. The section that I left out is the part right after, uh, right after we say, let, a, let us lift our hearts to the Lord. You say it is proper and right. Then I read a prayer, the beginning of the Anaphora prayers. It is proper and right to sing to you, bless you, praise you. And it goes on, it says, you, do, you did not cease doing everything in you le- until you led us to heaven and granted us your kingdom to come. That is what leads into the next part of the prayer, and you'll all recognize when I tap on the patent and say, singing the victory hymn, proclaiming, crying out, and saying. And then the choir sings a long response. Well, the prayer is so long, you usually don't hear that prayer, but this is the prayer that I am reading. So I want to go over this prayer a little with you so that when, uh, when we celebrate... St. Basil's liturgy during Great Lent, you'll have a better understanding. And what this prayer is, it's really a a synopsis. This is the prayer of a great mind. St. Basil the Great and St. John Chrysostom both edited liturgies that we now celebrate today. St. John Chrysostom is perhaps a shorter liturgy, and maybe that's why we celebrate it more often. Uh, But St. Basil's has very deep theological prayers and insightful prayers. And it's not just the theology, but it's the experience of taking people into God's presence. And this has been celebrated for centuries. So it's not a liturgy that we feel that needs to change or be updated because its effect is so profound What has to happen is we have to be changed and updated. 
And throughout the generations, many people have discovered and encountered this prayer in this liturgy, and worlds have opened up to them. They've been awestruck by the mystery and the majesty of these prayers. So as I think it was Aristotle, correct me if I'm wrong, who said an unexamined life is not worth living. Well, today, an unexamined text is not worth passing by. So we have to examine this and see what we can find out about it. So I've divided it up into, uh, you'll see it has this, the, num- the numbered sequence, the fall, the divine plan, the incarnation, theosis, baptism and chrismation, resurrection, ascension, and then Holy Communion itself. So we begin with the introduction. This is the great mystery revealed, and I don't have it highlighted, but this is the introduction. Together at the very top, with these blessed powers, loving Master, we sinners also cry out and say, truly you are holy and most holy, and there are no bounds to the majesty of your holiness. You are holy in all your works, for with righteousness and true judgment you have ordered all things for us. And that goes back to the first quote that I read, when we offer ourselves to God, then everything is ordered in our life, and it's to bring us into relationship, to bring us to salvation to Him. So this is God's love letter to us. So, he created us, and he put us, he created us out of dust from the earth, and he put his image in us, that we are like him, and then he honored us by putting us in a garden of delight, promising him eternal life and the enjoyment of everlasting blessings, pay attention, in the observance of your commandments. That was the only clincher, obedience. If you want to stay there, do what I tell you, and nobody gets hurt. But he respects our free will. So watch, throughout, we see whenever he does something for us, it's always respecting our free will. He doesn't make us do anything. So we go to the fall disobedience, and the result is we are cut off from God, from eternal life, and when we are cut off from the source of life, we die. In the garden he warned him, do not eat of this tree. He didn't say, or I will kill you. He said, or you will surely die. So, I have highlighted, but when he disobeyed you, the true God who had created him and was led astray by the deception of the serpent, becoming subject to death through his own transgressions. You, O God, in your righteous judgment, expelled him from the paradise into this world, returning him to the earth from which he was taken. So we were put out of paradise. We were cut off from paradise. Now paradise, that means the doors of paradise were closed to us. There were two trees in the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, And the second tree was the tree of life. So he did not want us to eat of the tree of life and be eternally separated. So he granted the separation of the body and soul that we could die. So after that comma, I have highlighted 
yet providing for him the salvation of regeneration in your Christ. In other words, he knew from the beginning that we would fall. So he had a divine plan, a way to bring us back. And he did everything to bring us to him. Uh, Paradise was dependent on free will, obedience and salvation is dependent on free will and obedience and cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So what did he do for us? Well, he sent the prophets. And what did we do to the prophets? We stoned the prophets. Uh, He performed mighty works through his saints. He gave us the law through Moses. He sent angels as guardians. And all of this led up to at the right time, he sent us his only begotten son. So that takes us to three Uh, The highlighted part, he appeared on earth and lived with humankind, becoming incarnate from a holy virgin. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Now to understand this, we have the creator of the universe becoming a creature. Christine and Jason were in here. They showed me their Lego collection. They built these fantastic cities of Legos. It's like them building this Lego collection and they're becoming a Lego. Well, I mean, they just stand there. But, but I mean, on that scale, if you can imagine that the cir- second person of the Trinity became one of his creatures and dwelt among us. And uh, that was the cause for a lot of ecumenical councils and a lot of reflection and a lot of pondering. So, through the incarnation from a holy virgin when the time was right. And then it goes on to say that he might change us in the likeness of the image of his glory. That was the original plan. We're created in his image and the process is becoming his likeness. So the plan hasn't changed. He's just brought it about again and says, now we're going to do it there on earth. And we call that theosis, becoming like God. And then I don't have it highlighted, but I'll read it to you. Uh, He says, God and Father, born of a woman, the only Theotokos and ever Virgin Mary, born under the law to condemn sin in his flesh so that those who died in Adam may be brought to life in him. St. Gregory Palamas tells us that Christ did not have to die. That if we hadn't killed him, he would never have died. Why? Because he was sinless. Sin brings about death and corruption, but he was sinless. He could have gone on living forever if we hadn't killed him. So he came to condemn sin in the flesh. In other words, he gave it no foothold. It had no place in his life. So he was like us in everything except for sin. So we go down further. He guided us to the sure knowledge of you, the true God and Father. He acquired us for himself as his chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. That's what he has created for himself. And then 
This is what makes us members of that royal priesthood, having cleansed us by water and sanctified us with the Holy Spirit. Those are the initiation rites of the Christian. The baptism for cleansing of sins and the sanctifying by chrism of the Holy Spirit. So we see those two sacraments mentioned in this prayer. And then six. He gave himself as ransom to death, andalagma, and uh, we translate that, it says ransom, but it also means as an exchange. In other words, he died. He gave himself as ransom to death in which we were held captive, sold under sin. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. Descending into Hades through the cross that he might fill all things with himself, he loosed the bonds of death. So that's the question, the method of salvation. How does it happen? Well, he fills all things with himself. He descends into Hades through the cross as a ransom to death sold under sin, and he loosens the bonds of death. How? Because it is not possible that the author of life would be dominated by corruption. In our hymnography, it says, death swallowed up life and couldn't contain it and vomited it up. Because death had no right over Christ because he was sinless. Death has a right over us. We're separated from God. But he swallowed God and couldn't contain him. And so we have the resurrection, having opened a path for all flesh to the resurrection from the dead. Again, opened a path. Look at the language. It doesn't make us. He opens the doors. And by conquering the gates of hell, what did he do? He reopened the gates of paradise. He put that forth for us as an option, as a choice. Then he ascended into heaven, number seven, and he sat at the right hand of your majesty on high, and he will come to render to each according to his works. As memorials of his saving passion, he has left us these gifts which we have set forth before your coming to his command, and that is that he left us holy communion as a memorial of his saving passion, and this is where we touch heaven, by an encounter with the living God in the divine liturgy. God gives us himself, this treasure held in jars of clay. God comes to abide in us and cleanse us from every sin and to save our souls. Now we know that this is a taste of heaven, but it's now, but not yet. We don't realize the fullness of the kingdom of God Yet what we do experience is really and truly the experience of the kingdom of God now. But its fullness will have to wait until the coming of Christ or until we go to meet him. Jean-Pierre de Cossard in his classic book, The Sacrament of the Present Moment, writes about the complete surrender to God. The sure and solid foundation of our spiritual life is to give ourselves to God and put ourselves entirely in His hands, body, and soul. 
to forget ourselves completely so that he becomes our whole joy and his pleasure and glory, his being our only good, to think of ourselves as objects sold and delivered for God, to do with what he likes. With this foundation laid, souls have had to spend their entire existence rejoicing that God is God, surrendering themselves so completely that they are happy to obey his commands, whatever they may be, and without question. So God has given us precepts, another word, precepts for salvation, so that we can willingly obey his commands. And the more that we are able to do that, the more we fulfill the commands and obedience that had us in paradise until we sinned and disobeyed God, we begin to establish and make visible the kingdom of God to those around us, that they can see a transfigured life. But again, it's by our obedience and cooperation with the Holy Spirit. There are two other parts to this prayer. The other part is the, uh, the commemoration. We commemorate uh, the Virgin Mary, St. John, uh, and all the apostles. And then we end uh, with the bishop. And those are things we can read on our own. But keep this page and read it during Great Lent. And remember the meaning of this prayer. Study it. I didn't exhaust it in one small teaching but it is a very profound prayer and it really helps us understand what it is that God has given us, the treasure that we hold in our hands and the blessing that it is. Are there any questions? It's a good time if there's anything that needs to be cleared up that we could uh, clarify it here. If not, or if you come up with questions later, you can answer them. I can answer them later. All right. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.